0: Welcome to another episode of Steve's Speed Shop, brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. We're brought to you by Mini Sports, specialising in the classic Mini since 1967, and we're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They sell Harley-Davidson's, lots of them, and very lovely they are too. Find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. My guest this week is Tim Forthorpe. Tim is a lifelong motorcyclist. He started out on a pooch, a sports moped, as so many of us did. He's a lot of bikes. He works as a dispatch rider, riding over 50,000 miles a year, on predictably a Honda CX500, the mighty slug. Um, he's now up for election to chair the Motorcycle Action Group an organisation that I believe in passionately they fight for riders' rights don't think you can just ride a motorcycle and they're not going to try and legislate you out of existence they are and people like Tim are determined to stop them so, my guest this week, Tim Forthorpe but by the way, if you ride, join the Motorcycle Action Group so Tim, um If you look on the internet, (laughs) careful what you look at. Careful what you look at on the internet. But one of the most popular questions that people will pose—I'm not sure why they do—maybe for traffic or clicks or likes or whatever it is. I've never been able to do that, which is why this podcast is like a hidden gem. (laughs) (laughs) Because here's the thing, Tim. I find it—I'm getting off topic already. I haven't even started, but I'll tell you for why. I, bizarrely, people who know me, people who know me know this, I find it a bit awkward, like, soliciting attention. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Because I was brought up with a, don't draw attention to yourself. That's what, well, I was. That's what idiots do. Look at that, my granddad all the time, look at that idiot over there drawing attention to himself, and I thought, yeah, he's an idiot. So, of course, as I've gone through life and spent most of my working career in the media, I've constantly been urged to promote myself and like big myself up and all that and I'm thinking, oh, I don't like doing that. I, I mean a lot of people will be thinking, you are they'll be listening to this and thinking, you've got to be joking Barry. But it's true. Yeah. There's 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 something about our generation I think that's like that's how we were brought up. Don't don't draw necessary attention to yourself.
1: Uh, I agree, uh, but like you, I don't know why. It's just uh, maybe it's just a northern thing. Uh, I'm from Dewsbury, so the other side of the hills from where you were born. The wrong side.
0: <laughs> <laughs> let's not we fall. Out. <laughs> let's not fall out straight away. Yeah, yeah. Let's not fall. So, yeah. one of the most popular questions that people have put up is, "What was your first car, or what was your first bike?" And I'm always amazed that people just flock to, to sort of remember their first, their first bike. What was your... I suppose it reminds you of a time when I think... Why, why do you think it is? I'll ask you first. Why do you think people are so keen to sort of share tales about their first, their first internal combustion-powered device?
1: Why? Uh, because it's such a glorious thing to get on your first motorcycle... Have your own independence. Go wherever you want to go. Yeah, I, but it does stick with you. Is that, you know that you know when you're doing these things that, that it's going to be something you remember. Uh, so but my first motorbike uh, was a Puk V50. It was bright yellow. It wow. was a sports moped. It <laughs> had the three. It had a three-speed gearbox, uh, which you changed on the handlebar, you pulled the clutch lever and then rotated that left-hand handlebar to put it into gear. Like Uh, a Vespa? Sorry? Like
0: a Vespa, Tim? Uh,
1: No, it was a proper motorbike shape.
0: No, hold on a second. Have you ever ridden a Vespa? Uh,
1: No, I have never ridden a Vespa. Right, well,
0: unlike the 60 million people that have, including a former editor of Scooter magazine... Yeah. I e me <laughs> yeah. on a Vespa traditionally and a Lambretta, you would pull the clutch in on the left hand side and rotate the entire handlebar assembly to select a gear. And I mean, straight away you think that's not a good idea, and it wasn't a good idea. It, were, <laughs> they, the cables were constantly jumping the the sort of uh, the guides that they were in, or yeah. the guides would wear out, or the cables would snap, or oh, it was you know once as soon as because i'd ridden bikes before i got on scooters i i had this scooter period of about five or six years in my late teens and early 20s and then went back to bikes because i've been been on bikes before but what i found really odd and this is going to move on to what you one of the things you and i are going to talk about hob is the sort of the sort of bad feeling between scooter riders and motorcycle riders and i just thought don't you realise that we've got way, way more in common with each other? <laughs> the, the general public look at us with a mixture of envy, suspicion and guilt. Oh, we tinged with fear, right? Whether you're on a Vespa Pinasco 180 with a loud expansion pipe and you're wearing Doc Martens and a green jacket, you might think you look cool, but a lot of the general public are looking at you and thinking, I'm scared of him, he looks scary. Or if you're equally a biker on a big chopper, you know, wearing a cut off and like big dirty boots and all that carry on, they're looking at you the same way. They're looking at you with a sort of, you know, ooh, I don't like him. I can't imagine too many people looked at you on your, what was it, your putch V something. Yes. With a mixture of fear, guilt and, and envy. Maybe a bit of envy, yeah. Yes. How fast was it? Come on. Gen- <laughs> no 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 Tim, come on. Realistically how fast not not fantasy land. How fast was that pooch?
1: thirty miles an hour
0: on a good day. Oh mate. Yeah, but surely you and your mates fiddled with it to try and to try and rectify that situation. Uh
1: none of my mates actually rode mopeds. Oh you joking. Countryside, you know, they were had Bantam, one, set one 175s in the field and things, but I tended to
0: be the only motorcyclist in the group I was in. I have found that. I've always lived in, in big cities, whether it's, you know, London or Manchester. I was trying to think of another big city that I've lived in. I've always lived in big cities, London, Manchester, London, Manchester, London. Yes. <laughs> I've only ever lived in London or Manchester. But I considered Birmingham once. I remember going to look at House in Malls when I was at the BBC. Oh, hold on. First mention of me being at the BBC, eight minutes in exactly. Right. <laughs> OK, we, we have to time these things, Tim, because I, I, can't, I can't get through an hour without mentioning it. But no. um, I did think of moving to Birmingham because of the commute. I was I commuted for 11 and a half years from Manchester to Birmingham, two or three yeah. times a week, sometimes four or five times a week. And I just, just I used to think, why not just move there? And then think, nah, nah. I'm not having to go at Birmingham. I'm sure it's a great place. Some great motorcycles came out of there. But my point being, I have found that when I've gone to these, like, country towns, market towns, places that have a square with cobbles and a cross in the middle that points towards, like, major cities, they're all sort of marked to escort land, aren't they? Or Subaru rally car land. The local sort of fast lads, they like four wheels, don't they?
1: They do, yeah. Just going back to this distinction between scooters and motorcycles. Yeah. I think uh, back when I was the regional rep for the Motorcycle Action Group in London, not one person, well, very few people were actually scooter riders and they didn't join and do the things that we were doing in the Motorcycle Action Group. They had a very
0: distinct culture. And then two never seem to mix at all. Well, I think it's different now. If you go to the Distinguished Gentleman's ride, which goes on yes. all over the world, uh is it in September Tim? It is, it's around September time, isn't it? It is, yeah. And they encourage you to ride dapper, which is probably a bad idea. Uh first mention <laughs> first mention of Jay Leno, nine minutes forty seven seconds. Because as Jay Leno as Jay Leno often points out when he gets on like a Henderson or an old Velocet or a Vincent or something like that and puts on a full-face helmet, he said, I always feel odd putting on a full-face helmet and getting on a vintage bike. But, of course, you're far more likely to have a horrible accident on a vintage bike because engine power was sorted out way before anything else, wasn't it? You think 1922... A Henderson Deluxe did a hundred miles an hour. You could go and buy a hundred mile an hour motorbike. When I when I ask people that and say, when you think the first hundred mile an hour bike, they go, oh, a uh, Bruce Superior in the or uh, a Vincent. I go, no, no, nineteen twenty two, the Henderson brothers demonstrated their Deluxe model with a four valve head again, f- four uh, four cylinder and, and four valve heads, and it did a um, hundred miles an hour. <laughs> I, I mean, one of them – hold on. One but, of them was killed shortly afterwards. I would add that. One of them was killed in the same year, demonstrating that bike. So let's, you know, let's let's emphasise that – that does emphasise, doesn't it? Engine power yeah. came way before brakes, tyre technology, suspension, chassis technology, any of that. They went, ooh, let's just make it – Oh, it's making lots of power. Great. And then you're dead. So it's like a bit of a problem, you know. But that carried on mm. – I mean, even the 60s and 70s, something like the
1: La was awesomely fast, but, you know, handling and cornering were uh, not as
0: good, is the way I would put it. I'll add another one to that list. Katana, 1,100 Katana. I, I lusted after one of those motorcycles. On the way to school, there was a pub uh, called the Jolly Wagners. I don't know if it's still there. I don't think so. Not not too many pubs are. But there were too many pubs anyway. When people say, oh, the old pubs are all going, and you go, yeah, because there was one every five yards. In the- well, there was in this part of the world. We, <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't need that many pubs. Oh, by the way, um, drinking was different then because beer was really weak. And it's, yeah. it, do, you know how, do you know what reminded me of that? Because my dad used to tell this, my dad, first mention of my dad, 12 minutes. <laughs> my dad always gets mentions as well. Um and my granddad. And my great grandfather, but we'll get on to that. So because um, they were they were motoring men, they were they were engineering men. Anyway. Yeah. Um my dad would tell this story of before they started drinking, he'd emphasise this, before they started drinking on a Friday night, they would go to a place called Birtle between Berry and Rochdale, at the top of the hill. Right? It's called Jericho the place before it, which sort of give you know, it was it was the highest part in that part of the of the of the world, Jericho, so a uh, mountain, so not a mountain, a mount, and they would have a half a pint of beer in every pub from Birtle to the centre to Berrytown Centre, and that was thirteen pints, twenty six pubs from, from if you twenty six, and I walk, I, go, I drive down that road now and think doctor surgery, beauty salon, uh, you know nursery nurse crash kindergarten whatever you want to call it yeah because we didn't need 26 pubs on about three mile a road not really you know no. that was that was just on the main road but here's the thing i went to goodwood for, i'll stop talking in a second don't worry went to the goodwood festival of uh no not the festival of speed the revival and, yes. and have you been to that tim you've been to it i've been to
1: Goodwood. Uh, I. Don't know
0: whether it was the revival or speed. Right. Well, I'll, I'll tell you which. I'll, I'll tell you how to work it out. Were you at the circuit? Yes. It was revival. Revivals at the circuit. Festival of Speeds at Is Nibs's house, and basically you going up his drive. So ah. we were at the revival at the circuit, which is a couple of miles down the road. Yeah. And they recreated a Tesco supermarket from the nineteen sixties and put on sale all sorts of stuff that you couldn't get, like spangles. <laughs> <laughs> right and one of the things that they put on the sale was double diamond lager do you remember that I uh, I grew up in a pub uh so that was Right. Well, yes, I'm aware of
1: all
0: the alcohol you could buy. So I'm necking this double diamond. It was a really hot day. I'm dressed as Jack Nicholson, wearing a Hawaiian shirt, smoking a big cigar, Ray-Ban Wayfarers and drinking double diamond lager. I'm not sure double diamond is is Jack's favourite tipple, but there you go. (laughs) And my missus is going, what are you doing drinking that beer? And I went, look how strong it is, sweetheart, or rather how strong it isn't. 2.4%. It's basically shandy. So all those stories that my dad told about, oh yeah, we used to have thirteen pints before we started drinking. I'm like, Dad, it was two point four percent or less. That's not yeah. dr- That's not. Th- I don't think that really qualifies as drinking.
1: <laughs> well, uh, traditionally, uh,
0: water was poisonous, so everybody used to drink beer. That's why we had a lot of pubs. Yeah, and they had and they had small beer for children, didn't they? They said, "Here, have, have your." Because when people use that phrase, "Oh, it's small beer," they mean it was a bit rubbish. And yes. small beer was beer for kids, and people thought it was a bit rubbish because it was for children. You couldn't really, you couldn't really put that. One. But as you said, drinking water was dangerous. Yeah. As I think W. C. Field, w. C. Fields was remarking even in the sort of nineteen thirties. But uh, we've got a bit off topic. <laughs> we happy. always do. Yeah. Do you know who I found out was a keen motorcyclist the other day? Talking of like yeah. W. C. Fields. Charlie Chaplin. Oh, okay. You only just—it's funny. You you often find because I've got this kind of thing about Steve McQueen, and it's and and the thing that I've got about Steve McQueen is I'm bloody sick of Steve McQueen. the The number of this sort of they go oh there's Barbara Steve McQueen, Steve McQueen, st- uh, the race in his life. The rest is just waiting. Oh, let's buy a poster and put it. I've got. a Steve McQueen picture in my den, right? But I put it up years ago, I put it up years ago before people were interested in Steve McQueen. And you go to someone like Goodwood and you go around the stalls that sell all the ephemera and all that, and they've got all these posters of him giving the V sign and all that sort of stuff. And you, you think, do you know what? There were other actors and celebrities who were way more into, well, at least as much into bikes as him, but they didn't just shout about it all the time. Like, for instance, George Formby. I'm okay. Yeah, that's stunned you into silence, hasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's the answer to the pub quiz. quiz, Well, I'll ask you the pub quiz question, and then you can give me the answer, but I've given you a bit of a clue. Who's the only person that's ever won the Grand National, the FA Cup, and uh, the Isle of Man TT? Well, some going from your previous statement, George Formby. In his films. I think it's the FA Cup. I may have got that bit wrong. I know there's one where he wins the Grand National. Yes. I don't know, uh, I've got to tell you a quick Grand National anecdote before we get back to George Formby. I was commentating on the wettest, wettest it was a sprint at um, Aintree, the Aintree circuit, the, cir- the motor racing circuit, which exists in and around the famous Grand National horse racing circuit. And it was the only time in 36 years that they'd had to cancel the event because of rain, but... Being British, we'd manfully soldiered on for most of the day, trying to ignore the fact that it was torrential. I mean, torrential. Not just a bit of rain. We used to rain in the northwest of England. Yes, you are. Torrential. Yes, we are. Thank you, Tim. (laughs) Torrential rain. And um, I was actually covered. The reason they stopped the event was because a guy in a Peugeot, I think it was a 106 rally, quite a handy little hot hatch from the 90s, he left the motor racing circuit at the end of the straight, went through a surrounding perimeter, across the grass, through a surrounding perimeter fence, and embedded himself in Beecher's Brook. <laughs> How about that? So that bloke will go through the rest of his life and they'll go, he'll go, oh, yeah, I'll never forget 2017 when I, I came to I came to an abrupt halt at Beecher's. <laughs> and people will go, were you in the Grand National? And he'll go, no, I was in a Peugeot 106 rally. It <laughs> just reminded me of a
1: statement my younger brother said about the 2CV. He used to call them puddle jumpers.
0: I like a 2CV. And uh, that would have been ideal, We might have even been able to take the fence. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, uh, my first car was a posh 2CV. It was a 2CV it in its Sunday best. I had an Ami. Yes. Which was the same arrangement. An Ami brake and and the the pretense there was of course that when you turn a saloon car into a load carrier you don't really want to you don't really want to make it less desirable so you give it a name like estate which of course comes from a car that i would use on my estate now yeah. the fact that most people who bought an estate car didn't even know that or or lived on a council estate <laughs> which is quite different for yeah. people listening around the world, uh, was a different matter. And, and one of the other things, of course, is they call it a station wagon in, in the States or or here as well. If Aston Martin extended the back end of a DB6 or whatever, they'd call it a shooting brake and, and, and try and suggest that that's where you put your dogs and your guns when you're out on your land, blasting things out of the sky. And the weirdest thing was that when I got my Ami brake, Ken four seven seven P, where are you now? Can you remember the registration of that pooch? Can you remember it? Oh no! No! Oh remember. come on! Because you, you blasted my theory out of the water. Anyway, to get back to the, this anecdote, when I um, when I got Ken Ken four seven seven P, my Citroen Ami eight break, I thought, oh ridiculous! As if this would be used like by some bloke for shooting. That's exactly what happened to it. The bloke who bought it. From me, although he technically bought it off my dad, and my dad didn't even tell me that he'd sold my what was allegedly my car. I've yeah. got rid of your car. I've got your mini. It's outside. You can keep paying yeah. me. You can keep paying me weekly. It was a bit more, but never mind. I'll let you off on that. That was the way my dad operated. Didn't ask me. Didn't consult me. Sold the car out from under me. Bought another car without asking me. But you know, I wasn't complaining because he didn't put the payments up. So um, that's what happened to it. The bloke who bought it, this sort of tatty second hand Citro- citroen two c v in a in its Sunday best he went shooting because he was he was doing his shooting on the wetlands near like Southport and Ormskirk. Do you know that part of the northwest uh no, i don't it's very flat flatlands. It's where you got taken. You know, when you were at school, and they, locally, they always used to take you to a place. Like, the, the other place they used to take us from the northwest is the Blue John Mines in Derbyshire. Everyone went there. Where did you lot go? Where did you lot all got take, get taken? Uh, York for the
1: Railway Museum yeah. and the, the walls and things. Yeah, uh, yeah. They didn't have the York Museum
0: then. Yeah. Well... Um, those wetlands, obviously the last thing you want to be going on there in is a two-ton four-wheel drive because it'll just sink to its axles and that's it. But as you were saying, the uh, the Ami or a 2CV, something like that, with its super thin, almost like pram wheels, are weighing yeah. as much as an empty crisp packet. It would just... Puddles jump. It would just skip across those uh, those wetlands and enable him to get to the, uh, the place where he wanted to ruthlessly slaughter the... <laughs> I used to do it myself for years and I just, I don't know, I've I've got a really sort of, I've got a really ambivalent attitude towards shooting and hunting and all that sort of stuff. I did it and I'm not going to say I didn't. And I, I sort of enjoyed it when I did it, but it got to the point where I just felt it was a bit, it was getting a bit, it was getting super repetitive. You know, I was like, I was stood there in a tweed waistcoat and gait and trousers that only came just past my knees Uh, And I was firing away at birds. I was paying a huge amount of money to blast these birds out of the sky when I could have got onto Berry Market, onto the outdoor market, and bought one of those birds for two or three quid, instead of paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds to go and stand there in tweed trousers and do it. Yes. Can you uh, remember? I, we, we must get back to your bikes. Can you remember the bike that replaced the pooch? And, and did the pooch live to see another day, or did you manage to destroy it in your youthful enthusiasm?
1: I, I destroyed it. Uh, it, <laughs> it broke down uh, in Hull. Uh, I didn't have recovery or anything like that. It wasn't something that we had uh, around. I left it there. I went home. Uh, hitchhiking back to Pickering in North Yorkshire uh, and when I managed to go back get back to it it had disappeared
0: <laughs> aha but
1: so, it it was destroyed I mean I,
0: I think I wrote it into the ground the so, so what replaced it Tim a Honda c90 step through oh one of the one of the iconic machines in the history of internal combustion isn't it it really is it, it such a wonderful machine.
1: I mean, so simple, so rugged.
0: I abuse that machine mechanically. Tim, have you seen that? So... Have you seen that lad Ed March on YouTube that goes around the world on a C90? Uh, I've not seen his videos. I know of him. British lad. Uh, you got you got look at his stuff. Some of it's good. Yes. He can get a bit passive-aggressive at times, but I'm I'm sure we all can when when, yeah. confro- when confronted by the difficulties of travelling through countries where English isn't... I was going to do some sort of wacky 1970s comedy voice of not speaking English then, but I probably shouldn't do it because it's 2021. <laughs> it's not 1978. <laughs> <laughs> no, you should watch it because one of the things that it does is it proves what you've just said, Ed's, Ed's videos. He's a great kid and he, he does all of He's He's been from, like, the top of Alaska to the bottom of... Chile. I'm not saying Chile because I'm from Bury, yeah. Lancashire, I'm not from Santiago. I hate it yeah. when people do that. Anyway, so he's got right to the bottom, top to bottom on a C90. There's none of this like you McGregor stuff where you get on a big off-road BMW or whatever. You just got a tatty old C90 and start riding. And if it if it breaks, you can fix it with anything really, can't you? If you've got a stone yeah. and some duct tape, you can fix it.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I have been touring Europe and come across people riding them far and
0: wide. They're not exactly an object of desire, though, are you? I wonder if anyone has ever got laid because they were riding a Honda Cub. I mean, they say you <laughs> well, they say you do meet the nicest people, but you meet the nicest people and then they have a bit of a giggle at your transport, really, don't they? Yeah, <laughs> well, it,
1: it's, I don't know about
0: humour, but it, it seems to be... Uh, either English or Northern humour. My dad was a big man for them. He'd buy them, sort of, people had... Because, like you say, they were so easy to fix. Something would go wrong with them, and somebody had offered to sell it to him, and he'd buy it. And it was such an easy fix, he'd buy it, fix it the same day and flip it the next day. And come yeah. on... He'd go on, go, home, go to work on a blue one, come back on a red one.
1: And you think, <laughs> hold on,
0: what's, what's going on? Oh, right, OK. He had, lo- he had, he had loads of them. Yeah. But usually with a dirty, great big box on the back. I don't know what he had in that box—tools or something like that. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, it's something
1: you do if you know you would have a motorcycle. Back when I was learning to ride, you carried a few tools just so you could fix things like broken
0: throttle cables and clutch cables and things. So, Tim, technically, I'm going to—I'm going to say this. I'm going to say it out loud. It's a bit mean of me, but there you go. We've not really had a true motorcycle yet, have we? We've had a sort of a sports moped. We've yeah. had a, we've had. Um, not sure if the C90 is a is a scooter. It's not really a scooter. Is it? it's a it's a step through. Yeah. So when does the first motorcycle that we we would recognise as a motorcycle make an appearance?
1: Uh, after the Honda 90. it was a Honda again. Uh, CB175. CB175. I always get that mixed up. It was twin carb
0: as opposed to the single carb, so it was the sportier version. Oof. And um, how were we? How were we purchasing these bikes? Was this was this buying them new on new on the higher purchase, or were they were they bangers out of the local paper, out of the classifieds, or the Auto Trader?
1: Well, the uh, CB was by uh, word of mouth for a friend of mine. I was working with at the time. He had one, and he told me about this other one that was for sale. Uh, so, using my hard-earned cash, I rocked up, had a look at it, bought it, and rode it on the same day—probably slightly illegally. Looking back on it.
0: Oh, you terrible man! Hey, Tim, regular listeners to this show will know that we, we've had people on here who rode for years, <laughs> for years. <laughs> right. Well, okay. Second mention of my dad. When I was, oh, this has got to be about 15 years ago, my brother, who doesn't, I get an okay with my brother, but we we, we don't bother each other too much. You know, we talk and we get on, but we, we you know, he doesn't call me that often, let's put it that way. I yeah. get a call from my brother, he's like, uh, have you heard? I said, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, "He said, what do you mean? He said, you're going to love this. Because when we were growing up, our dad, we used to hear these stories about our dad, and he used to ride motorbikes, but he was an incredibly conservative motorist. We'd be driving along in our Hillman Hunter or our Hill... He was a big man for the Roots group, my dad. So Chrysler Avengers, Hillman Hunters. Most men back then were either... Most working men were Ford men or Vauxhall men, weren't they? Not my dad. My dad was a Roots group man. Chrysler Avengers, Sunbeams. What was that thing that was a hatchback? I'm trying to remember. Terrible thing, anyway. He he liked them, so we'd be driving along. Somebody go past, somebody's overtake us, and my dad would go first in the race to the cemetery and stuff like that. I was thinking, I was thinking, he's doing 40 miles an hour, dad, on a dual carriageway. He was a very conservative motorist, and we couldn't square this image of our dad. People used to say, Oh, your dad, your dad Alan, back in the day on his bike, all these stories, you know. So we thought, Oh. Anyway, my brother calls me, like I said, 15 years ago, and said, Dad's been pulled over by the police. I said, you're joking. What for? You know, look, can't be for speeding. He said, no, no, he had a brake light out or something. I yeah. said, guess what? He hasn't got a driving licence. I said, what do you mean he hasn't got his driving licence? He said, no. He, he could just, he said, no, no, no. He didn't, it's not that he didn't physically have his driving licence on him. Dad has never had a driving licence. And I was like, What? Well, I right, I, Tim, I can't tell you how shocked I was. because, yeah. and, and then it all fell into place. Oh, yeah, that's why he was such a conservative motorist. Because he's never had a driving licence. <laughs> and here was the thing. My dad had to take his driving test. And I was round at my parents' house, and obviously I hadn't mentioned it. And he left the road for some reason, and my mother said, Stephen, whatever you do, don't mention the driving licence thing. <laughs> <laughs> whatever you do because i am i am as friends colleagues people who stood next to me at a bus stop will know i am liable to blurt out things inappropriately do you know what i mean yeah. so <laughs> said uh, he didn't find it fun he did not find it. he had to have driving lessons so this is a guy how oh, old would my dad be then early 50s yeah. He, had to, he had to have driving lessons to get through his test. <laughs> he didn't find it amusing at all, but you know, it was. Um, it's a funny arrangement in the UK, isn't it, Tim? Where you can buy a car, you don't have to have drive. Yeah. You don't have to show a driving license. You can get insurance. You don't have to show them a driving license. You can yeah. tax it. You don't have to show them a driving license. So, like my dad, you can make sure everything else is in order. It's if the police are following you. The number comes up on their computer, it's taxed, it's insured, it's MOT'd, off you go. It doesn't say, Oh yeah, by the way, the dude driving, it's never had a driving licence. You might <laughs> want to check that. <laughs> thank God, Tim, thank God he passed. That's all yeah. thank God he passed. Well there you go. Yeah, so I
1: think it might have been more like I didn't tell the insurance
0: company until I got home that I was riding a different motorbike. Uh, there you go so did you take well no once a, yeah did you take your test on that bike or had you already passed it no I this was before the 125 rule came in
1: so the maximum I could ride was a 250 yeah uh, and I rode that uh, and well I didn't actually take my motorbike test until after that rule came in I actually moved to London and was riding around London uh, on a one two
0: five, I can't remember a, a CG one two five. Yeah, I had, a, I had a couple of those. They were such a great bike. They are a great bike. And again, the CG one two five is the cornerstone of the Chinese motorcycle industry. If yes. you if you look at all these super callous fandango spiced up Chinese single cylinder bikes on the street, whatever configuration they are, cafe racer, adventure bike low rider, bobber, whatever they are. Yes. They've all got a CG one, two, five engine. You look and you go, that's a CG one, two, five on the Lex motor pulse, adrenaline, venom, extra sport plus. That's the CG one, two. And that's the CG one, two, five motor as well. It's either that or the Yamaha SR one, two, five engine. They yes. must have made tens of millions of those by now. Yeah. I'd say that I had one of
1: those, uh, I passed my test in London back in eighty-four, I think it was. Uh, so it was—I was riding motorcycles for fi- quite a few years before I actually got my full license. Uh, and you know, from then on, it was bigger bikes. Right. Well, come on. What, what was the first big bike? Uh, my first big bike. Uh, what's your
0: definition of a big bike? Uh, uh, over two fifty. Because my first big bike was a four hundred four Honda. Okay, so technically Which isn't that big, but it's kind of big if you've only ever been on one two fives and two fifties, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well so technically my first big bike was uh, the four hundred Super Dream. <laughs> but I didn't know that. What happened was the two fifty Dream I was riding uh died. The engine died. So I did a swap for a second hand one I'd bought. I hadn't realised it was a 400 engine, not a 250
0: engine. Ah. I just, I, I just thought, oh, this is a bit better. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honour, I had no idea that it was actually a 400cc engine. The man who I, I sold did, it to me... I wasn't me... paying attention. I was more interested in getting the engine swapped over so I could keep on riding. Yeah, the man who sold it to me swore it was a 250. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, OK. So you didn't know you bought a 400. You thought, oh, this goes, I, it, this it, goes it, well. You know,
1: after I did. And after that, I thought, well, I'm not going to check just
0: in case I get stopped by the police. So wait, me, <laughs> and, me and some pals, a couple of whom are quite high-profile motorcyclists, have got have, have cooked up this idea that we... Because we were talking about adventure, motorcycling adventures, and I'll ask you about that in just a sec. And we were saying there are so many... People out there, not just men, but people out there who fancy a bit of that Ewan and Charlie action, if you'll pardon the expression. But guess what? They haven't got the time. They haven't got the money. They haven't got the resources to just go off round the world or up and down the world or whatever. We thought, what's a doable adventure that would give people enough of a challenging adventure so they think they've done something? And we thought, what about the North Coast 500 in Scotland? But here's the thing. Do the North Coast 500, but not on the bikes we've got, because it's too easy. You know, the pal who I initially cooked this up with over a coffee in the kennels at Goodwood, not actual kennels, not where there are dogs where where you can have coffee, um, has got a Triumph Tiger Explorer, huge, great, you know, thunderous adventure bike. I said, it's too easy. Let's do the North Coast 500 on bikes that cost no more than 500 pounds, and let's not do it on bikes of more than 500cc. And that has turned it into a challenge, because we've looked for bikes that you could buy for under 500 pounds and under 500 cc's, and it's a very limited market. It really is. That Superdream that you've just mentioned, a 400 Superdream, you'd think, perfect, 400 Superdream find one of them for under 500 quid and the funny thing is my pal Rupert who was who's been on the show great bloke lifelong motorcyclist he said I'm just gonna get um, a a CX 500 I went well good luck with that mate for 500 (laughs) quid because all the bike shed bobber brown saddle brigade have have cottoned onto the CX haven't they he he got back to me said I've looked online and people want three grand for them Because he'd last looked at CX500s about 10 years ago when people were throwing them away. But as soon as the sort of hipster, built magazine, like I said, brown saddle, heat wrap on the pipes, as soon as those boys get into something, the price just rockets, doesn't it? Regardless of how rubbish the bike might be. And by the way, I don't think the CX was a bad bike. It was a good bike. And it was, in many ways, it was sort of mold-breaking in its time, wasn't it?
1: I owned one of those, uh, and it was one of the first bikes I got when I got married, and uh, it it had the the bearing problem. Ah. Uh, So, unfortunately, mine died shortly after I got it uh, at Christmas Eve somewhere on the M1. Tim, there's a theme here.
0: You are a motorcycle killer. These things keep expiring. do you, put yeah. oil in do you put oil in them, mate? You do realise you've got to do that, It, don't it, you? it, it, it was a, a fault
1: that was yeah. supposed to be rectified, but wasn't. But going back to your adventure thing, you don't, I mean, an adventure is doing something that's fun. Uh, are you aware of the daft way up that uh, Manny, or Richard Manton, the uh, Leeds and Bradford Motorcycle Action Group rep. I'm not. Organised a few years ago. What was that? So it was called The Daft Way Up uh, and it was a fundraising effort by the Motorcycle Action Group and it was from Land's End to John O'Glood on totally unsuitable machines and it had to be about a 125. Right. There was a, a 13 or 14 of them took part and they were supported by other regional reps and they rode and it was horrendously bad weather. It was. <laughs>
0: No, I, it was
1: April. But day did. Uh, right, well,
0: good, we, you've mentioned York. Back in yes. the day, I used to work in construction during the week, and then I was basically the only one out of my group, out of my group of friends, who hadn't gone onto higher education. I was the one who said, "I'm not going to bloody. I don't want to be a bloody student. I'm going to get in the world, earn some money." Of course, once I got in the world and started actually working and thinking. The problem with this job is it's really hard and they expect me to come again tomorrow and then again the day after that. I, I, yes. I, When I my first day on a building site, I thought, how often do you have to do this? Like once a week and then you get the rest of the week to recover. No, you come here five and a half days a week, mate. Yes. And I was thinking, this is really hard. I'm going to go to university. So I, I lasted, I think, three years in construction and then did go to university. But in the middle bit, I used to work in the week and then head for York where my then-girlfriend was at university. And, of course, being 19, nothing's going to... If if there's a promise, if there's a guaranteed whats the face at the yes. end of the line, when you're 19, you would ride through the fires of Hades, wouldn't you, naked to get to it. Yes. So I, I'd taken a Piaggio chow. Have you ever seen one of them, Tim? No. Right, so, so say you're in... Um, Say you're in, like, Naples or something like that and somebody steals your wallet. Like, two, two lads come past and one of them on the back steals your wallet. They're probably on a chow. It's not... It's it's a moped. It's... it's You pedal to start, and then it's... But it's got big wheels rather than sort of small scooter wheels. Yeah. So it's it's more manoeuvrable when they want to rob you in the street. So, uh, not that that happens. Well, in Naples it does. And in Rome. And in quite a few other parts of the southern Mediterranean. But there you go. So I... What had happened was the postman had knocked on our door and said, you like uh, Italian things, don't you? Because I had it out for a Mayo and a Vespa. Yeah. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I've, got, I've bought this uh, motorbike. He said, motorbike. He said, and I don't like it. I want to sell it. And I said, well, I'm not really interested. He said, but it's cheap. If you, if you can buy it today, I don't know. Anyway, I ended up with this chow, which is stuck in the garage. And then I got into a situation like you sometimes do when you're that age, where neither the car nor the scooter was going. And so I set off for York on this uh, Piaggio Chow. And I got, you'll know this place. I got to Blubber Houses, the improbably named Blubber Houses near Harrogate. And I don't don't know if you know it, but there's a massive hill there at Blubber, a massive hill. And so I'm going down it and I thought, this is a giggle, because I'm on this sort of pedal to start Italian commuter 50cc thing. And I'm going down there and I'm going... Ee like this for ages, and I remember thinking to myself, "Well, I better be careful." And as I thought, I better be careful. It seized and threw me straight over the handlebars. Because <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing: there was no bloody clutch to pull in, was there? There was uh... no bloody clutch. It was a two. It was that deadliest of two-wheel devices, a two-stroke with no clutch. So you can't oh. you can't cover the clutch and pull the clutch in when it seizes. Chuck me over the handlebars. And uh, the postscript to this story is that later on, after the after the uh, appropriate measures had been taken, once I'd arrived, my then uh, girlfriend pointed out that you could see the ligaments of my knee moving about through the hole. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she was like, "I can see into your knee," and I was going, yes. "I was going." It was really, it was numb. And I was going, oh yeah. I mean, it hurt later people are saying, "Oh, can you? What do you mean?" It was well. Later on, it hurt. Yeah. Let me tell you, but I was yeah. feeling feeling no pain then. But going back to this adventure thing. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So it was terrible yeah. weather, and they were all on one, two, fives and fifties and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Then
1: they, you know, they all eventually got there. It took them several days because of the speed. <laughs> <of the speech. laughs> Uh, they did a fine job. I mean, they raised money from Macmillan as well as uh, Motorcycle Action Group Fund. But they are talking about doing it again on even less horsepower. I don't think it's had many takers at the moment. I, think, I'm,
0: I think I should get onto eBay straight away and see if I can get a Piaggio chow yeah. <laughs> and get involved. But I've got to say, technically
1: my first adventure was probably about three miles long, and it was on the the CB 175. And basically, I got on it, and I decided to go up a footpath through a small piece of wood, woodland, and I rode down this footpath in this small piece of woodland, really enjoying myself, got to the other end, turned around, came back,
0: and that was my first motorcycle adventure. (laughs) When did you first fall off badly? When did you you first end up in hospital? Go on, on, let's have that story. Do you know the North Yorkshire
1: Moors Railway? I do, yeah. So when it first started, the government had this job creation scheme. Mm -hmm. And I was put on this job creation scheme, and I lived in Pickering at the time, on the outskirts of Pickering, so I had to ride to uh, work. And in the middle of winter on my two wheels, there is a corner I went round and for about a week in a row. After, after the first time, I was more careful, but for about a week in a row, it was just sheet ice, and I went round it the first time, and I came off, and I went sliding across the road in the early hours of the morning. Oh. sheet ice. But the, the most
0: serious accident I had that sticks to my mind was when I was a motorcycle courier in London, Oh, right, so you had to go at that, did you? I watched um, a documentary last night about that. A, a pal of mine, Vince Ryder, um, yeah. sent me a link, or he put it. He didn't send it to me. He put it up on, on Facebook, and I think Vince did something like he did about ten years, eleven years as a courier. Yeah, and um, I knew quite a few lads who. who I did one day. No, I did, did. I do two days? Well, we filmed it over two days, but I did a. I did a. Hold on, first mention of Top Gear, forty-five minutes. Like. We d- we did ah yeah yeah I always mention it always get usually I don't even get ten minutes in but there you go so that's not bad but we did yes. um, we did a-, a piece where I pretended I was was a courier and I had the radio on and all that and I went to Chaz Bikes did you ever go to Chaz Bikes I like Chaz Chaz yeah. is still there he's down by the Imperial War Museum now good lord really yes oh that was a while ago because yeah, the thing about Chaz book, Bikes was he would only work on courier bikes. And they would do you on a CX500 a full service in 20 minutes. Like three blocks yeah. would swarm all over the bike. They'd change the tyres, they'd change the oil, they'd change the plug, the filter, they'd change everything in 20 minutes while you had a cup of tea. Yes. But uh, yeah. So,
1: anyway, so I was riding a hired the CB200. I love the CB200. Really? It's a great little
0: buzzy bike, yeah. Right. It's it just RS. Sorry,
1: the CB200RS.
0: Oh, I know which one you mean. Yeah, that was a cracking bike. That had an overhead cam, didn't it? So it was... It it,
1: it, it, it was a a bit of a sports bike. But anyway, I got a job to go to Watford. Uh, This was just after I had had a puncture and I'd taken it back to the motorbike shop. They'd plugged the puncture and I was doing about 70 miles an hour and the... Plug came out of the back tyre. I ended up high siding on the M1 uh, from the outside lane to the hard shoulder with the motorbike pushing me down the road. Oh dear. <laughs> I, that that's, that's when I ended up with a broken left wrist and the plate in it.
0: Was that all? A
1: broken wrist? Yes. Oh, you were... Touch wood. Well, you could have. i had been very lucky with my accidents. So yeah. I've had some that. Well, anyway, I've had some that been, could have been potentially
0: very serious. Yeah, well it's it's not the accident it's the stopping isn't it I mean my that last my last one which was December 2019 the bloke who knocked me off threw me into the opposite carriageway I ended up I ended up on the the other side of the road with cars literally swerving to to, to avoid my tumbling torso you know yeah. you think to yourself it wasn't the 15 20 mile an hour impact of hitting the car which it was the classic I didn't see you. Uh, as yes. I've already said on this show. I pointed at the giant 1200 cc BMW lying on its side, leaking all, all fluids everywhere, and said, "Oh, shall I get a bigger motorbike?" You know, it's like a giant BMW <laughs> 1200. So it's yeah. 650 pounds dry. I mean, how big does he want the bloody thing to be before he can see it? But the people swerving out of the way. You know, if one of them had hit me, that that would have been the problem, not not the impact. It would it would have been the stopping rather than the than the than the accident itself. Do you, you, I mean, the one before that, I got knocked off my son's Yamaha 125, which meant I was wearing street clothes instead of proper motorcycle gear, which is stupid, but I was on a 125. I thought, erroneously thought, I don't need to put loads of gear on. I'm only on a 125. And um, the thing that I'll remember is standing up after the accident and thinking, how did I get to here? The accident is over there, it's way over there. And how did I get to here? And I got to here mainly in the air because I'd gone straight over the bonnet. It was a Mercedes S Class, a big three box car. He turned right, where you, two things, you know, you can't turn, you're not supposed to turn right, it's a head only. So that's why I obviously wasn't expecting him to do it. And I hit the front wheel of his car and managed to clear the bonnet because it was an old school three box Mercedes. I managed to clear the bonnet without touching the car and then went flying down the road, but fortunately in the direction of travel. So I just went into empty space instead of hitting a lamppost or a fence or something, you know, pretty much immovable that may have done a lot more damage than just tumbling and rolling down the road did. Yeah. Uh, and it was my birthday. Did I mention that, Tim? No, you didn't. it was my bloody birthday the day that I was on my way to my birthday party. Can you imagine? <laughs> Happy birthday to you! I'm like, I actually, <laughs> I actually carried on. I didn't go to hospital. I didn't go yeah. to hospital because I was just banged up. I think I had a few broken bones in one foot, but I've had that before playing rugby and football, where I've ended up in A and e and they've said, "Oh yeah, you've got a few of the small bones in your foot are broken," and you go, "Yeah," and they go, "Right, that's it. You can go now." Oh, you're not going to do anything? they like, look at you! Like, what do you want us to do? It's just, yeah. it's just don't put any weight on it you're gonna to have to hop for a while okay you know, yeah. it's like one of those jobs so when did yeah. you when did you so there's a there's a traditional biking career starting with small bikes moving on to uh to bigger bikes um and then working as a, a career what sort of mileage were you doing a year do it because people are always that's what blows people my people's minds what sort of mileage were you doing then tim in the career days
1: in the courier days, I was doing thousands a week. A
0: thousand week. a week, yeah. So you're doing 50,000 miles a year.
1: Yes.
0: Wow. So you're doing what the average motorcyclist does in about 10 years or yes. even, even longer every year. A lot of people get put off motorcycling. Producer Paul here, who produces this show, was a motorcycle courier. And he's sort of back into it now, but he said for a long time that job put him off motorbikes. Because of the weather, mainly.
1: Yes. Uh, I've never been put off motorcycles. I've had to give up motorcycling for financial reasons when my family came along. Uh, But I got back into it when I became single again, and that was my first bike then, was an SL125. Right. Bike's a a bike,
0: innit, it, mate? You know what I mean? It's like... It is, and yeah,
1: I, I was smart enough to realise that after I think it was about eight years, I couldn't really get back on the the big bikes. The, the bike before that was the uh, CB750F2. Right. So uh, I, I was smart enough to realise that, no, I shouldn't be getting back on that, and there's one, two, five came up. Yeah, I was going to say,
0: you, have you ever had anything, that after the pooch, have you ever had anything non-Japanese? Or has it just been Japanese bikes from from, from there on in? I mean, I there's, uh, there's I, good reason for Japanese bikes. There's all sorts of good reasons. But has it just been Japanese ever since the, since the glory days of that pooch? Uh,
1: up until 2015,
0: ah. when I was
1: in the financial position of being able to buy my first ever brand-new motorcycle. And that's a Triumph Tiger 800 XCX, which I still own.
0: A pal of mine's got one of those. He's very happy with it. Yes. Are
1: you? Uh, I The bike, I think, is wonderful. Uh, a few weeks after I bought it, I rode wrote it to Sicily. <laughs> I went by Corsica and Sardinia. And oh. It was a full three-week holiday.
0: Oh, Fantastic. Um,
1: I had met my girlfriend in Sicily. She flew out. She wasn't up to riding that sort of distance and time. She became a, a holiday biker and things, so she would ride around hot countries on the back. And I rode all the way back, and I had a, a really good time. My problem with this motorcycle is, for an, as it's an off-road, technically it's an off-road dual-purpose dual bike, is the cost of the. Bits that get broken if you're green learning. Uh, gear levers, hundred plus mirrors. You have to buy the pair, ninety pounds uh. plus. and if you don't get, and if your clutch lever breaks, uh, you have to buy the. You can't buy a pattern part, or you have to get an exact match. Because if you don't, then the cruise control doesn't work, and the fuel gauge doesn't work because they're tied in
0: somehow to the clutch lever. Oh, right. Well, I, and the obvious this, solution to that would be don't go green lining on it. One of the reasons I bought it was yeah, because well, uh, I, I, yeah. like, I
1: like travelling, and I'm not going to be put off. If I want to go up a mountain pass in the Alps or the Pyrenees, I'll, take, I'll go a ride through some very dodgy roads in Spain, I don't want to be put off because the motorbike can't take it. I mean, my argument is that motorbike, any motorbike could take it, but, uh, you know, you don't have to have
0: an adventure bike to have an adventure. Do you know what make good, um, surprisingly good off-road bikes? Harleys. There's, yeah. Yeah, we got, um, I was. we were taking pictures of this new Harley that I was, when I say testing, I, I, the, I always hear a laughing voice at the back of my head said, test it. You weren't test it. Was, I was riding this Harley for a magazine article. And I was with a photographer I've worked with loads of times. And he, he, near where we were, there was this country park that the BBC often used for period dramas and stuff like that. Beautiful sort of rolling landscape countryside. And he said, I want to go there. And I don't want to go there at sunset. So I said, right, OK, we'll do that. And I, we arranged to meet there and all that sort of stuff. Went down there. He faffed around for ages doing his, getting all artistic, you know, like they sometimes do, the snappers, which is great because, you know, better product, don't mind putting in the work. But yes. we got ourselves locked in. And two mountain bikers went by us and they went, oh, there's a gap in the wall or the fence or whatever, you can get through there. We said, great. and said, "Well, oh, you probably won't get there on that. So I was like, oh. Huh. Well, I said, can I follow you? And they went, yeah, but you might get stuck. And I thought, well, in for a penny. So I followed these two guys, and it was the trail was pretty demanding. I just put put this Harley in second and just went along on a trickle of throttle, and it 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 was so torquey. It just it somehow, as long as you didn't fiddle with the throttle or or dare touch the brakes, managed to get through. They were quite. They were like I think they were a bit disappointed because they had these sort of Carlos Fandango mountain bikes that cost thousands of you know, full of titanium and carbon fibre. And yeah. I and I was on a Harley Davidson with sort of cow on handlebars, and, and I managed to go along the same trail as them and get out get out the country park. Have but, you yeah. come across Emilio Scotto? I think he's Brazilian. I haven't is he on the is he on the YouTube Tim?
1: Uh, uh, well, it's a. I only came across him because my brother uh, bought me his book. It's called The Longest Ride. He did half a million miles touring what? on. Uh, no. Goldwing, but we're talking through Brazilian rainforest and all sorts of things. Wow. Out Outtick, tundra, he just went anywhere on this motorbike.
0: That's almost the opposite of Ed March, who we were talking about at the start of this conversation. Because, you know, the guy who's doing it on a single-cylinder Honda Cub, and then you go to the absolute other extreme of the Honda range, and the, the dude is doing it on a Goldwing, half a million miles. I mean, this book is several years old. You how know. often? Yeah, but how often, Tim? Would you say uh, in the average week, will you be struck by the thought that you just want to give all this up and just take off on your bike and ride around the world or whatever? How often? Uh, Le- uh, at least uh, twice a week, quite maybe. Often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same here. It, it's just, I mean,
1: my motorcycle is my transport, and it's you know, even if I had a car, it would be a default motorcycle. There's stuff I've carried on motorbikes. Uh, it's staggering. I have a photograph of myself with uh, in Corsica on an uh, 1100 pan, with all the camping kit piled up really high on the back. Probably uh, not very well balanced, and things you know, the CG would have moved significantly. But I'm not a small guy, and my girlfriend at the time was wasn't small,
0: so Careful. it was so overloaded and everything, but. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a way to go. <laughs> yeah, I've always used bikes as transport. Today I've come in on a motorcycle. I, I came yeah. out of the came out of the house, I had a choice. Bicycle, four wheels, three four wheelers, motorcycle. And I thought and yeah. I, I remember thinking, It's not raining. A motorcycle is by far the quickest, the easiest and the most enjoyable choice for this trip. And so 40, after 40 years of motorcycling legally on the road and a few of riding not legally on the road, yeah. uh, but it was a long time ago Um I'm still I'm really glad that I still think that a motorcycle is the most, often the quickest and the most enjoyable way to transport a human being from one place to another, it's a joy isn't it, do you still get That's a thrill it. out of it oh yes, uh, even, even the silly things, Uh I
1: lived in London for 40 years approximately 40 years and my youngest daughter who is uh does have a full motorbike license and she's got a little YBR 125 in the garage she doesn't ride at the moment because she's a new mother uh I if the only way I would never went to see them was by if I wasn't well enough uh up here uh I moved up to Leeds uh late last year my other daughter lives over 10 miles the other side of Leeds from me, and I go there, I take the long way around, I come back, I take the long way around, just for the enjoyment of the
0: journey. Well, you've got some great roads around there, haven't you, mate? And of course, there's the the old Squire's Coffee Bar, Sherburne and Elmett. That's been a biker meeting place for decades, hasn't it? Over, yeah, four, I was over 50 there years.
1: Uh, last Sunday morning, we had the uh, Yorkshire Motorcycle Action Group, AGM. And I, I, I say I went along to that and uh, but the main reason I went on to that was it was a different starting point to go and see my de-
0: daughter and grandchildren later on in the day. Well the thing is we've we've talked for an hour. I was going to say we've talked for an hour I've talked for an hour you've occasionally interjected. <laughs> <laughs> I am aware of that. We haven't really talked about the Motorcycle Action Group, which you've been very active with and which I think is more relevant now than it ever has been. So just tell people, could you just tell people quickly why they should join the Motorcycle Action Group and how they can join the Motorcycle Action Group?
1: Uh, why they should join the Motorcycle Action Group It's to fight for riders' right. Hmm. They have a history of... Fighting legislation uh, can make it more dangerous. They were talking about compulsory leg protectors, which would mean that every time you had a head-on collision, your leg didn't move, uh, you got thrown forward. Uh, damaging your back. Uh, if you like customising your motorcycle, they try to bring in a ban on that, mm. which they fought and won. Access to bus lanes, you know, bus lanes are a great way for motorcyclists to get through. It makes it a safer journey, a quicker journey. Uh it's one of the basic uh, campaigns that they have. One of the most important campaigns is motorcycle security. You I think you're obviously aware of how much the insurance rates have gone up for new riders and
0: things. Yep. It's all to do with theft. Yeah, because the police don't take it seriously. And then the problem—the the big problem with theft... is the big problem with theft here in Manchester. One, the police don't take it seriously. I it understand. And, and GMP, the resources, the Greater Manchester Police, the resources that they have available, I understand they have to prioritise what crimes they're going to deal with. They perceive that the theft of motorcycles, which are a relatively low value, please don't think that I don't take this seriously. I take it immensely seriously. Here's the biggest problem. Stolen motorcycles are used for a frightening percentage of the violent street crime that goes on in this city. It's not so much that somebody's stolen a bike, it's why they've stolen it. They've stolen it because they're going to use it to do something a lot more serious. And that's why I honestly believe the police should take motorcycle theft a whole lot more seriously than they do. They're looking at it as a relatively... They're looking at it the same way they are as if somebody broke into your house and stole your TV, your flat-screen TV. It's a relatively low-value item, a theft. Yeah. But what people aren't stealing TVs to do is to rob people in the streets, to rob petrol stations, to do all the things that they then do with those stolen motorcycles. And the police, I think here in Manchester, and I'm sure across the country, need to take, for that reason, need to take motorcycle theft a lot more seriously than they are doing. Yes. Well,
1: I mean, here in Leeds, uh, they've had a campaign with Leeds City Council, and they're actually putting in anchor points at the motorcycle parking bays, so you can chain your motorcycle
0: to the the railing so there's less chance of it being stolen yeah yeah so the motorcycle uh, action
1: group
0: how do do people join mac how do people join the motorcycle action group uh it's quite easy you go online to motorcycle action
1: group uh hyphen org dot uk and you can join online there you can go along to events like the yorkshire pudding rally which is up and coming one of the major things that the Mudsay Collection Group do.
0: And I've got um, a funny feeling that I'm going to be inveigled into riding a 50cc Piaggio Chow from Land's End to John O'Groats after this show goes out. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. If you want to listen to it again, don't worry, there's always the podcast, or you can listen to it here on Fab. There's a repeat on Saturday. See you next week.